She had been plagued by illness since before she could remember. She had been to countless doctors and even tried out alternative natural medicines. But nothing seemed to work. Her sickness was beginning to drive a wedge between herself and loved ones. And she began to grow desperate, thinking that she may never be well again. One day she heard that there would be a man that was going to be coming to her town. A man known for his powerful healings. A man with a pristine track record. And so she marked in her calendar and assured herself that this would be her chance. When the day came, she walked into the city center. It wasn't hard to find him because crowds of people were also doing so. As she grew closer, she thought she caught a glimpse of this great healer and broke into a run. The throngs of people grew thicker and thicker, and so she weaved through the sea of spectators. He was beginning to get out of reach. So with one last effort, she lunged forward, trying to grasp his clothes, but the hem of his cloak slipped through her fingers. She crumpled to the ground. Her her body began shaking with sadness. She had missed her opportunity. Who touched me? A voice rang out. Hesitantly, she lifted her head, and there before her stood the man. He leaned down and quietly said, Daughter, because of your faith, you have been healed. Years ago, there was a terrible accident, an accident which left a young man paralyzed. His once youthful exuberance had faded away as he was trapped inside the prison that was his body. His friends felt great pity for him and wished that they could bring his body back to life. But at the very least, they could wait on him hand and foot to make his suffering endurable. One night, as they were sitting together chatting, they heard rumors that this great healer would be stopping in their city this evening. And so they excitedly prepared their friend, got his cot ready, and began walking through the city searching for the home in which the great teacher would be. Again, it was easy to find. They just had to follow the crowd, but they became disheartened when they realized that the wall of people would be insurmountable with this cumbersome cot. And so they placed it down in the road and slumped down next to their friend. He tried to assure them that it was okay. Jokingly, he said, at this point, the only way we could possibly get close to him is if we rip the shingles off the roof and you drop me right on top of him. Instead of laughing, his friends grinned mischievously and picked up 
his cot, ignoring his protests, and began rushing towards the home. They lifted his body onto the roof and frantically pulled away the tiles. No sooner had they done this were they lowering the cot down into the home. The crowd gasped. And Jesus paused for a moment as he was rudely interrupted. Spectators looked to Jesus to rebuke these men for their audacious behavior. But instead he smiled. And he looked at the man lying there and said, Because of your faith, your sins are forgiven. Confusion filled the room, and so Jesus reiterated himself more plainly, more plainly. He said, get up, take your mat, and walk. There he was, hanging on a cross, with men on either side of him. He thought back over his life, and his heart was filled with sadness and regret. He had let so many opportunities slip through his fingers. So many times he had failed. So many times he had given in to his sin. And because of his crimes, he hung here today awaiting death. To his left was another common criminal, just like he, filled with hatred. A man so disturbed that even in his dying breath, he relished the opportunity to spit insults down on the people below. Cherishing the fact that even here on a cross, he could strike fear in the common man. To his right was another man. A man that he had heard much about, but never had a chance to meet. A man that was radical and claimed to be the son of God. And he looked over and saw him hanging there peacefully. Their eyes met and something leapt in his soul. This is truly the Son of God, he thought to himself. And he quickly quieted the man's insults to his left and turned to Jesus and said, Remember me when you are with your Father. To which Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, you will be with me in paradise today. These are incredible stories of salvation, the gift of mercy and grace. As we dive into this text, let's take a moment to present our hearts before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you have drawn us here today. Lord, that you have encouraged us to set foot in your throne room. We pray that our hearts would be lifted before you. Lord, that we'd be drawn deeper into faith. And Lord, that we would leave this place refreshed and invigorated. 
We pray this in your name. Amen. Open with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Ephesians is authored by the Apostle Paul, and we know that due to the circumstances of his life, the Apostle Paul was ready to receive salvation by no merit of his own. He had committed heinous crimes against the church, yet God has reached out his arm to him. And offered him salvation. And so in light of this, Paul says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. You see, salvation by faith is a foundational doctrine To our Christian religion. It's what sets us apart from other world religions. That a God would reach down to earth to solve a problem that wasn't his to fix. It recognizes that there is nothing you and I can do to prove ourselves worthy of God. A God so blameless that he can simply not be in the presence of sin. A God who repels sin like water and oil. And so we see in these stories that it is by no good work or merit or price that these people have bought their salvation. The woman in the streets, we know nothing about her. We don't know that she has lived rightly before God. All we know is that she is sick and she is desperately seeking a healer. And that Jesus might be her last opportunity. And so she reaches out to him in belief or desperation. And he extends his hand in grace and mercy. The man on the cot. Paralyzed. He does not bring with him silver and gold. He does not present a well-filled out resume. Instead, he has his friends drop him on top of Jesus, interrupting him in the middle of his sermon. Surely there were other people in this room that were seeking healing. Some might say that this man was remotely selfish. But Jesus sees his belief and he forgives his sins. The thief on the cross is undoubtedly undeserving of eternity in paradise. Even by the world's standards, he is not fit to live. Yet because something stirred in his heart in the final moments of his life, Jesus extends an offer of salvation. Salvation by faith alone is what sets us apart, but if you're anything like me, part of you says it seems a bit implausible. And it might even seem a little unfair. You see, we live in a culture that says you must scratch and claw for every opportunity that you receive. We are judged and compared based on our merit. Even at a young age, we take tests in school and turn in projects to prove worthy of a certain grade. 
We painstakingly wordsmith every bullet point on that one page of paper known as our resume. We turn in credit scores and bank approvals in order to prove that we are financially viable to own a home. And in order to find raises and promotions, we endure performance reviews. You see, we live in a culture that is wary of anything given to us in free. Given to us for free. There is no such thing as a free handout. Everything has strings attached. And so when we hear that salvation is offered to us by no works of our own, we may become wary. Romans 3 verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, we are seeing salvation through the eyes of our culture. We are not seeing salvation through the eyes of God. And we recognize that there is no one on this earth that could possibly be worthy of acceptance into the kingdom of heaven. The greatest humanitarian in the world and the sinner on a cross cannot earn their way. And so what originally seemed implausible now strikes us as imperative. As the only possible way. And this promise is something that we must, as a people, cling to. But we must also be careful not to misunderstand. Let's open for a moment to James. Chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. I'll remind you that James is the brother of Jesus. If there is anyone that should know whether or not Jesus is God and his brother. I can't imagine what my brother would have to do to convince me. James says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. In reading this passage, it seems like a stark contradiction to the words of Paul. We ask ourselves, how can in the same scripture that is supposedly all God breathed, we have two opposing arguments? One which recognizes that we are completely and utterly broken and undeserving of God. And another that says, at some level, the things that we do are proof of our faith and our salvation. But I don't think it's contradictory at all. I think James is pointing the believers of the day back to the writings of Paul. You see, because the believers of the day did what I do fairly often. They listened to the truths that were convenient for their lives while ignoring those that caused them to be uncomfortable. Because Paul never said it is by faith that we are saved and then just left that without a qualifier. 
Instead, he urged us not to continue in the way of sin. He urged us to continue to abide by the law. He urged us to take action so that others could see and be turned towards heaven. And so James is reminding these believers that there's more to faith. And I don't want you to believe that in some way that you need to prove your faith to God. That this is some sort of challenge and initiation into heaven that I believe and so therefore I must do these things to show God in my belief. It is not a prerequisite to faith. The man on the cross hanging there had no opportunity for works. But instead, I think we get hung up in how we view the process of faith. If you're like me, you view it as a linear progression, a step-by-step format to assure ourselves a place in heaven. First, like many of these other stories, we recognize that we have great need. We recognize that we are lacking. And so we turn for a solution, and that solution is belief in a God that is willing to forgive us. And so we give our hearts to God. And then God reaches down to us and hands us this gift of grace and mercy and salvation so that we may then reflect his good deeds to the world. I don't know, maybe that, does that sound familiar? That seems like the way that I tend to process how my faith works. It has a start, a middle, and an end. And it culminates in my citizenship in heaven. But I don't think that James sees it that way. Notice that James says in verse 17, James doesn't say that faith without works is not existent. Instead, he said, faith by itself that is not accompanied by action is dead. He doesn't say that it is not faith, that it is an imposter, that it is a facade. Instead, he says that it is a faith that has died. Or if we think of it in linear terms, it is a faith that has reached its completion. And so James is not trying to tell us that we must prove our faith, but rather he is giving us a solution and a better understanding of how faith works. And I think that he would propose that it is more of a circular process. We recognize our need. We come to God in belief. God draws us in. And being fueled by God, we go out and display his love throughout the world. And in doing that, we further recognize our need for a savior. We further recognize how far we fall short. And we must turn then back towards God and be drawn back into him. So that we can be refilled, refreshed, and commissioned again to go outward. This is a picture of faith That is not stagnant. It is a picture of faith that grows and deepens over time. A relationship with God that continues. It's in this light that we need to recognize that works and service are not done out of obligation. 
they are not done out of response to the gift we have given. They are not a thank you card to God. Instead, it is the process by which we are drawn closer and closer and closer to him. Benjamin Franklin once said, Tell me and I forget. Teach me and I remember. Involve me and I will learn. I think these words ring true in this process of salvation. But I think so often we have become content in remembering. We have become content in being taught about Jesus. We read our scriptures. We show up here on church on Sundays in the middle of the week. We know the promises of God, but still deep down inside, our faith feels dead. Our spirit feels dried up, and we wonder why we are not being continually pushed back to our Savior, why we lost the fervor that we once had for God. God is the great teacher. And he has been giving us opportunities to be involved in his kingdom. We talked recently about how God is all-powerful. How he can come in the world and fix things that weren't his to fix. I promise you, God doesn't need us to do anything for him. But instead, he invites us to a deeper sense of learning a deeper understanding of faith so that we can be encouraged to pursue him day after day. When I was a little boy, I idolized my big brother, Andy. And my wife would tell you that I still kind of idolize him today. But I wanted to be just like him. He was six years older than me, and he was so cool. I liked everything about him, and so... When I was nine or ten years old, I began imitating everything he did. Of course, as a little brother, he was irritated with me and wished I would stop. But I remember one day we went to the barber shop and he drove me there. And, and the barber asked me how I liked my haircut. And I said, like his. I want you to cut my hair like his. I would steal his clothes and his toys from his closet so that I could look like him. On vacation, when he would buy a puka shell necklace, the next day I would be wearing one as well. I tried to hang out with his friends. I tried to spend time with him. And one day, he, uh, was, he was turning 16, and he had inherited the family car, an old 1991 blue Honda Accord with about 100,000 miles on it. And he wanted to make it cool. Right? Because it's very important as a 16-year-old boy driving your car for your first time to show that you have a pretty impressive car. And so he took off the stock muffler and put a new one on that was much louder. It set off car alarms and parking garages. He installed a loud stereo with a subwoofer. He put on, I believe they were blue camouflage seat covers. And he put on uh, a light-up steering wheel cover. And I just thought it was the coolest thing I had ever seen. And so what did I do? I pulled my old pedal car out of the garage as a nine-year-old boy. And I began souping it up. I put baseball cards in the spokes. 
I printed pictures from my computer, and with packing tape, I taped them to my seat, stuffing cotton balls underneath to make it into a nice seat cover, and I wrapped the steering wheel with duct tape. I wanted to be just like Andy. You see, I recognized as a little boy what I think oftentimes we forget as adults. That in order to know somebody, in order to understand what drives them, we must take time to imitate them. We hear all the time that when we get in a dispute with a friend, we've always been encouraged to walk a mile in their shoes. Why? Because we are convinced that if we would understand where they were coming from, if we understood their feelings, if we understood their background, then we might be more receptive to understanding their response. And I believe we have the same call in Scripture towards our Christ. Ephesians 5 Verses 1 and 2 says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Other translations will say, Become imitators of Christ. We are in the courage in this passage, not just to learn about Christ, not just to hear about Christ, but to follow in his footsteps, to emulate Christ, to become his imitators, to do as he has done. And let me tell you, Christ lived a life of action. He was constantly on the go. Perpetually spending time with the sickest of the sick, the poorest of the poor. Feeding the hungry. Engaging in relationship with the lonely. And we are called to do likewise. Not to prove that we love Jesus. Not to prove that we have faith. Not to admit ourselves into heaven. But rather so that we can understand and emulate Christ's character. So that we can begin to understand the driving force behind his actions and be drawn closer and closer to him. So the first reason that we should dedicate ourselves to service and works is so that we can know more about our Savior. And in doing so, be drawn closer to him. As a high school student, I was convinced that I was going to be a newscaster. I loved writing. You can ask any of my friends. I loved talking. And what high schooler doesn't love the idea of being on television? And so after my sophomore year of high school, I applied for an internship with National Public Radio as their high school political analyst. And I received the job, and I went on my first day so excited for the opportunity to see behind the scenes and be on the radio. I had opportunities to walk the streets of Seattle interviewing people, uh, talking to people from various walks of life. I did careful research on politicians and the issues at hand. I spent hours in the tape rooms 
cleaning up the audio tracks that we had taken and copying them down verbatim so that the, we would know the script. I even had chances to put together my own bits and be on the radio. My sign-off was with KUOW. This is Peter Stearns. You know, I love that opportunity, and I was so excited to take part in it. And it was an incredibly formative internship. Because it taught me that I did not want to be a newscaster. It was incredibly boring. It was repetitive. It was exhausting. And it brought me no life. About seven years ago, I took another internship. This time, it was with Christ Church of Oak Brook's middle school ministry. I had been a volunteer and had experienced the youth group firsthand, and I loved being with the students, but in the back of my head, I kept asking myself, what in the world does a youth pastor do for the other 50 hours every week? What could he possibly fill his time with? And so I applied for this internship and received it, and I got to work. I had opportunities to create silly games for camp. We wrote out curriculums for the summer and tried to recognize what the needs of our students were. We carefully crafted experiences for them on missions trips. And, of course, we got countless ice cream cones at Dips and Dogs and McDonald's. This internship was also formational for me. Because it made me realize that this is what God made me to do. And every day I went home hoping or not waiting for the next day to start. Wishing I could be back at the church. Because you see, it's in taking action that we begin to understand ourselves. I could study journalism all I wanted in school, but nothing would have told me that it would be so difficult for me to actually do, like actually taking part in it. And I could go to youth group as many times as I wanted, but nothing could really tell me what went into the day-to-day and what it would feel like to be filled with the joy of serving in this church. Thomas Jefferson says, Do you want to know who you are? Don't ask. Act. Action will delineate and define you. You see, we are called into service, into action, into works, because it will teach us about the character of God and draw us closer to him, but it will also teach us about who we were created to be. Let's look back at that Ephesians 2. 8 through 9, where it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. But then it continues by saying, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God did not create us accidentally. He created us with a purpose. He gave us a place in his kingdom. And he calls us into action, not because he needs it, not because we need to prove ourselves to him, 
but because he wants us to experience the life-giving gifts he has given us. So as we leave today, don't feel obligated to serve the Lord. Don't feel the need to prove yourself. But recognize that if you're feeling dry right now, if you're feeling dead in your faith, maybe God is calling you to step into action. We've been recognizing all of our volunteers today here at Christ Church. And I promise you of the hundreds that we recognized, almost none of them were thoroughly convinced that they wanted to serve in the places they were asked to serve. In fact, if it's anything like middle school ministry, those volunteers were begged and coaxed and coerced into working for the church. But I also imagine that a great number of those wouldn't trade that experience for anything. Because again, they have been filled with fervor for the Lord and they have been drawn deeply in faith and closer to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not satisfied merely to teach us about your character. But instead, Lord, you have offered us opportunities to become involved and invested in your kingdom. Lord, we pray if we are feeling discouraged and disheartened and dry today, that, Lord, you would nudge us to jump into your service. To experience your love firsthand. And to be drawn closer in relationship to you. Amen.